Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, we're going to hear three archived but relevant conversations. In June of 2017, we spoke with Heidi Byrick, leader of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, about the resurgence of white supremacist violence in the Trump era. We'll revisit some of what she had to say. Also on the show, in June of 2018, we heard from sports reporter and author Howard Bryant. He'd just written a book about African-American athletes and social justice activism called The Heritage. We'll hear some of that conversation as well. And finally, in December of 2019, we talked with reporter Sharon Lerner, who covers health and the environment at The Intercept, about plastics recycling and the sketchy behavior of the industry behind it. That's all coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. We are in troubling times, listeners know, with people being attacked for simply saying that black lives matter and a president encouraging those attacks. It's what many feared when Trump came into office. But at the same time, we acknowledge that Trump didn't create the phenomenon of white supremacist violence. There's a whole history there that media should be using to shape their recording of present-day events, give them context, and hopefully put an end to the troubled individual trope to describe people who are, in fact, part of something larger. Counterspin talked about this in June of 2017 with Heidi Byrick, who leads the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Well, the last time we had you on, we talked about how when then-candidate Donald Trump was slow to disavow the Ku Klux Klan, media called it a stumble, uh, as though Trump had misspoken or was confused about the existence of white supremacy and its role in campaigns like his own. Now Donald Trump is president, and Southern Poverty Law Center, I understand, tracked some 900 attacks in his first 10 days in office. Well, no one thinks Trump invented right-wing extremism, but are we seeing maybe a new strain of an old disease? Yeah, I don't think there's any question but that we are seeing a new strain of an old disease, and it was encouraged certainly by the Trump campaign and the hate incidents that broke out. You know, there's almost 900 of them, like you said, right after the election was the result of the rhetoric in the campaign. I don't think anybody nowadays thinks that you can simply bash a population like Mexicans, as Trump did, or Muslims, and not get a result that ends up in violence in some cases. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in, and we have revitalized white supremacist groups, white supremacist thinking in the mainstream. It's really been a horrible uh, turn of events that's occurred over the last 16 months. Well, I know that you are not in the business of quantifying who is more violent than whom. That's kind of a mugs game and more a deflection from a conversation than anything. But you have suggested that white supremacy is an unusually combustible mental framework. What do you mean by that? What we find again and again, in particular with domestic terrorist acts or heinous hate crimes like what happened in Portland, is that people exposed to white supremacy, people who suck it in, the Dylan Roofs of the world, the Jeremy Christians of the world, often go on to commit violent acts. If you just look at the list of domestic terrorist attacks, let's say since Timothy McVeigh in 1995, 
There's a handful that are the result of people who have radical interpretations of Islam. But the bulk of the incidents involve people who have come to view whites as superior and who view this country as essentially undergoing a race war. And they make these violent acts. They do these things in their minds to save the country, in particular for white people. It's a very insidious mode of thinking that justifies things like genocide, ethnic cleansing. And so it's not surprising that we would get violence out of people who come to believe in these ideas. Well, if media were really concerned about domestic terror attacks per se, it seems that we would hear the name you just mentioned, Tim McVeigh, that we'd be hearing that night and noon, wouldn't we? Because, in fact, that attack was back in 1995, but Tim McVeigh is still sort of a figure in some of these circles. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Jeremy Christian had a like a poem or a tribute to McVeigh on his Facebook page, the cell of neo-Nazis which ended up with internecine battles and two men killed that was in Tampa a week and a half ago, they had a picture of McVeigh in their office. And people seem to have forgotten some sort of amnesia after the 9-11 attacks, which of course were horrific. But up to that point, McVeigh's bombing in Oklahoma City was the largest loss of life ever in a domestic terrorist incident. You know, some 180-plus people were killed, including children. And after 9-11, it was as though this type of terrorism, of course, it continued to occur, but it was though it didn't matter, right? All the focus was on the Muslim community, on radical interpretations of Islam, and there was just a reluctance to understand that terrorism comes in more than one form. And, of course, it's much easier to point the finger abroad or to a community that you can you know, easily other and say is not – part of us, meaning in recent years the Muslim community. When you talk about white supremacy, you've got to take a hard look at our culture because it is endemic, and it was here from the day this country started, even before, actually, with English settlers and so on. And there just seems constantly to be a reluctance to treat that kind of terrorism and hate crimes, I might add, as seriously as what is influenced by groups like ISIS or al-Qaeda. Well, and any thoughts on media? When I was booking you, I said I knew you'd be very busy, and I'm sorry for that in a way. I think that U.S. reporters should have a deep bench right now on white supremacist violence. It shouldn't be a concept that sort of springs up anew and then is forced on them and they need to look into it. You know, it, it really is, of course, as a story, something that could keep a journalist busy every day. Sure. Well, I mean, I have to say, um, you know, given the state of the media where there's been high turnover in newsrooms and new people coming in, that a lot of folks don't really have this more historical perspective on white supremacy, let alone to the 1990s. But we got to remember, it's only the mid-60s when we dismantled the legal framework that kept segregation, Jim Crow, and black oppression in place. So we are not that far from having written in law that black people should be treated worse than white people. And so I think that nowadays if you're involved in covering American politics, you have got to know the history of the civil rights movement and something about American history. And you need to know the violence that has been coming out of groups like the Ku Klux Klan and others inspired by hate ideas almost since the founding of the country to today and sort of a fundamental thing to know about. I mean I am – somewhat happy because I've seen in certain newsrooms more specialization on these issues, Mm -hmm. largely in response to the Trump campaign because they keep coming up and because there's so much domestic terrorism. But we could use more expertise in the media ranks about these issues. (music) 
That was Heidi Byrick of Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, speaking with Counterspin in June of 2017. Some may be surprised to see professional athletes and coaches speaking out against police killings of black people. The Milwaukee Bucks basketball team launched a strike after the police shooting of Jacob Blake, quickly joined by other teams and the WNBA, which had already been taking visible actions in support of Black Lives Matter and racial justice. But despite the insistence of some that they shut up and dribble, black athletes have a history of political engagement and making use of their powerful platform. We talked about that in June of 2018 with sports reporter and author Howard Bryant, who'd just written the book, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Well, I appreciate the way that the book enmeshes sports history in social history. Three days after Michael Jordan's NBA debut in 1984 was the day the NYPD killed Eleanor Bumpers, a 66-year-old black woman with mental illness, for instance. Generally, the media separate sports, uh, literally and figuratively, from everything else that's happening. It's an escape. It's a different world. And key to the story you tell, sports, Americans tell themselves, is a meritocracy. We may have racial injustice in society, but by golly, on the field, all that matters is can you run or throw or hit This idea that the job of the black athlete is in some ways to advertise U.S. equality, that's there from the beginning of the history of the heritage, isn't it? It sure has been. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting in trying to figure out how to tell this type of story, because there's so much to it, is where do you start and how do you put this together? And for me, the genesis of this had been this revival of this heritage. If you're of a certain age, you remember Muhammad Ali and you remember the memories, of course, of Jackie Robinson and you remember Bill Russell and all of these athletes, John Carlos, Tommy Smith and the 68 Olympics. You remember these players being very prominent and you remember them being advocates for African Americans. If you're of a different generation, if you were, say, born in the 80s or even even the 90s, this revival, the appearance of athletes taking a political stance, being involved in their community, being involved in social issues on a national level, is completely foreign because you grew up with the Michael Jordans and Tiger Woods being the model. So for me, what I thought was really sort of interesting and important was to remind people that the black athlete has been involved in the political struggle from the beginning, and that these players have had a very special place in American history. The argument that I make in the, in the book is that the black athlete is the most important and most influential and most visible black employee in the 20th century, because they're the ones who were allowed to integrate the society, whether it was the military, whether it was education, whether it was swimming pools, it was the ball players who came first. And because of that, they've had a responsibility to stand up and to advocate. So we recognize them when they're not there, and we remember them when they are. And with that comes this bind, you know, this visibility uh, as a real representation of integration, and yet still being a black American. And in terms of the history and the beginning, I think a lot of folks would be very, very surprised to hear that 
it starts with Paul Robeson. Absolutely. It starts with Paul Robeson. And of course, people don't realize that he played in the National Football League. He played football before he was the great baritone, before he was the great singer and the great, the great actor and the great activist. And, and one of the only reasons that he left professional football was because the National Football League was integrated and then it chose segregation until 1946. So when he played 1921 and 1922, football was integrated. And then by 1923, no blacks were allowed to play in the NFL for another quarter century. It wasn't just Robeson to me that I gravitated toward when tracing this this heritage. It was also the fact that the African-American athlete's political roots did not start with black issues. It started with Jewish issues. It started with World War II. It started with American athletes being asked to defend America against Nazism and, and Jewish athletes asking for solidarity against the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And also, of course, asking Jackie Robinson to denounce Paul Robeson in 1949 in support of, of America during the Cold War. So it wasn't until much later, it wasn't until you had Robinson in that testimony receive all the attention for his denouncing of Paul Robeson, but also inside of that testimony, he talked about inequality and police brutality and, and mistreatment of African Americans and fairness and all of these things that would become the foundations of this heritage. It started with Robinson, but not along racial lines to begin with. It started with defending America. I find Robinson's HUAC testimony to be maybe the most moving part of the book and such a clear, um, first of all, a thing that's so misremembered. Completely. You know. Um, we chose to emphasize the part that made America feel good, right. which was, see, Jackie Robinson is a real American because he denounced Paul Robeson, the bad Negro communist. I don't even think we misremembered everything. We just chose to ignore it. And when I started to read that testimony when I was doing the research, I was wondering, did I know this? I think I kind of knew this, but maybe I really didn't either. Right. And, and that's what we do. We decide to omit one of the great favorite colleagues and the, the great writer, David Marinus, once said to me that history writes people out of the story, and it's our job to write them back in. And I think that Robinson testimony is something that needed to be written back in. Absolutely. Well, you know, history's moving along, and owners and teams are aware that integration is happening, but... I, I like how you note that this idea that became popular and still holds sway, that, oh, they're only looking for the best players, that that was fiction uh, always. And there's this note that Earl Wilson, when Earl Wilson was signed to the Boston Red Sox, the scouting report described him as a, quote, well-mannered colored boy, not too black, pleasant to talk to, close quote. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so you have you have this story of integration, but then... Black athletes are making money, and some of them are making a tremendous amount of money. And so that gives them a bigger megaphone and at the same time more calls not to use it. For caution, absolutely. And I think that's this tension that the black athlete has that even other black entertainers don't have. Why are we now talking about Oprah Winfrey as a potential presidential candidate? Because she has money. And we talk about Mark Cuban as a presidential candidate or Donald Trump as president or Michael Bloomberg as the mayor of was a mayor of New York because they were all rich. When it comes to the black athlete, though, what we want from them in exchange for the money is silence. We don't want to hear from them. We want them to be quiet. We want them to shut up and play or shut up and dribble. And this is the one area where money is not affording you a bigger voice. And that goes back to 
this very interesting relationship that we tend to have with our sports figures that there's an ownership to them, that they don't necessarily get to be citizens, that their job is to entertain us. And I think that's one of the areas where this heritage has become so polarizing in a lot of ways, is this feeling of ownership is now colliding with the fact that you have this new generation of black athletes, post-Trayvon Martin, post-Ferguson, post-Eric Garner and Sandra Bland, who are now citizens, especially thanks to the prevalence of social media. They're watching these viral videos just like the rest of us are on YouTube, and they're looking at this dash cam footage. And one of the things that one of the players, Taven Austin, had said, who played for the St. Louis Rams when he came out in 2014 with the hands-up, don't-shoot gesture before a game, was, it's hard for me to go back to my community knowing that this is going on, knowing that I've got a platform, and all my friends and family are looking at me going... People listen to you and you're not saying anything. That's the heritage. That was sports reporter and author Howard Bryant speaking with Counterspin in June of 2018. And finally, you may have heard that big oil companies are lobbying the U.S. to put pressure on Kenya to weaken its stance against plastic waste. While publicly claiming to strive for a world free of plastic waste, usual suspects like Shell and Exxon are seeking to use trade negotiations to circumvent rules limiting the so-called waste trade, which environmentalists say will mean turning Kenya and eventually other places in sub-Saharan Africa into dumping grounds. It's just the latest machination from a plastics industry that is almost as vigorous in their PR as in their despoiling of the planet. In December of 2019, we got some history from Sharon Lerner, who covers health and the environment for The Intercept. Well, I have to start with the crying Indian, not just because I'm a child of the 70s, but I didn't realize how emblematic it was of what's been a continued strategy of plastic industries around the question of waste. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the backstory on that ad and the the context in which it appeared. So that ad ran in 1971, and it was put out by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Keep America Beautiful is the group we think of as sort of a do-gooder group. Their mission, what they talk about is keeping our public spaces clean and free of litter. But it turns out that the group itself was begun by the beverage industry, several soda companies, National Soft Drink Association. And it came at a time when there was the beginning of an awareness of the plastic pollution crisis on the part of the public. And it should be noted that the big plastics producers and users were actually aware of the fact that plastic was already accumulating in the ocean and was as quite a, a, an ecological hazard. So that growing awareness helped spawn some protests in 1970 on the first Earth Day. And, you know, the folks who were concerned about growing waste wasn't quite so much plastic at that time. Uh, it was mostly cans that were being used. But the whole idea of using disposable packaging that you could have one drink of soda and then just throw out the thing that it came in was really new. And already activists were becoming aware that, wow, this crisis is going to affect us deeply. And, and they had a protest 
on the Coca-Cola company and staged Ecology Day, Ecology Trek, they call it, where they went to Coca-Cola's headquarters with these non-returnable bottles, some of which were plastic, I think, and some, again, cans. So here's this sort of growing awareness of this problem. And in 1971, the fact comes out and really flips the whole frame, right? So what they do with that ad and others before and after that really hit the same note is they really squarely put the blame of waste on individuals as opposed to the companies who produce the waste and profit from the products and not coincidentally the same companies that are funding Keep America Beautiful and funding the ads that are doing this shaming. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not, first of all, it shows that there's been an awareness of the problem of plastic wastes since there's been plastics. It's not something that snuck up on the industry, which I found, you know, kind of interesting. And then the idea that this ad that I think many people thought of as, golly, here's the industry kind of proactively engaging one of the downsides potentially of what they do and the idea that it was in fact a very targeted intervention was news to me at least. But beyond that, I would say that most people had no idea that it was coming from industry at all. Right. That message gives you this sense that, oh, we're just concerned citizens who really care about stopping trash. Well, in fact, it was coming from the companies that made that trash, and nobody had any idea. You know, there's no reason to suspect that it came from them at all. You know, it very effectively makes people upset about the fact that we are littering and destroying our earth. But what it does is leave the viewer thinking, I feel terrible about my role in that. What it doesn't do, and what was going on in the background, too, was at the same time, the beverage industry was actively fighting these proposals, one, to ban the production of single-use containers back then, but also bottle bills, which basically are this effort to put some of the responsibility for recycling the containers back onto the companies that make them. And generally speaking, these companies don't want that responsibility, both because of the expense of it and because of the hassle of it. So very consistently over the decades, they have fought these bottle bills and very successfully. And, you know, right around this 1971 ad, they were actually the lobbyists for the industry had effectively squatted down national legislation or a proposal that would have banned, again, disposable containers and would have put forward a bottle bill on a federal level. Well, yeah, I almost skip over the fact that, of course, it was Keep America Beautiful, which no one was thinking of really as a front group um, or thinking about front groups uh, at all um, for industries. We saw it as just kind of consumers and concerned citizens, you know, uh, taking up the effort. Uh, Well, we think of recycling as local in some ways. I, I feel like that's the association when, in fact, it's a big business, which is, of course, international. And some of the realities that you and others have reported on about the business of recycling, which is being presented to us, you know, as the as the answer, but the reality of the business of plastics recycling are heartbreaking, like the Indonesian islands where Coca-Cola has pushed their products and they now are littering the ground and then villagers burn that waste literally poisoning themselves and the food chain, right? Right. Yeah, and another sort of very upsetting 
point here is that in many cases, especially when you're talking about Coca-Cola and these remote islands, it is sometimes Coke itself, but it's also sometimes bought out water. And these many places don't have potable water and thus are literally forced to survive on this bottled water, which in many cases we're talking about bottles that they very successfully get to these remote places but then don't successfully remove from these places. And then there's also a lot of really good reporting on the fact that these companies actually drain aquifers and then sell what ought to be a very you know, public human resource back to people in plastic bottles at expense and sometimes expense that they can't afford. It's very dystopian. And I wanted to say, you know, there's no hyperbole here. You wrote, quote, plastic waste is now widely understood to be a cause of species extinction, ecological devastation, and human health problems, close quote. And, you know, given that it's virtually all from oil and natural gas and coal, it also contributes to climate change. And it's in that context that we're talking about industry PR to convince people that recycling is sufficient. I agree. One of many things that I found upsetting in your piece from July was the way that the plastics industry is gearing up for, as you put it, the fight of its life. And in fact, you are at an association conference in which the keynote came from an expert in actual warfare. What What is that telling us? <laughs> Yes, I thought that was an interesting choice. No one explicitly, you know, explained why they were why they had made this choice. I mean, this was someone who had been the captain of a boat that was under attack and you know, and he told the details of this brutal attack and then talked about the USS Cole and then talked about basically his success this you know, despite the adversity that he faced, he talked about in the end piloting his ship away, you know, with the national anthem blaring and going on to victory is basically a hard-fought victory is the way he described it. And I think that the plastic industry very much does feel under assault right now. Really, there's this growing awareness of how immense and terrible this problem is we're all facing. And, And as you just laid out, it's a health problem. It's an environmental problem. It's a racial justice problem at this point because of the way it's distributed throughout the country and the world. That was journalist Sharon Lerner from The Intercept speaking with Counterspin in December of 2019. Before her, you heard Howard Bryant and Heidi Byrick. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.